0: Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge program. The Fatherhood Challenge is a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability of an environment and culture. We're going to encourage and challenge each other to step up and do courageous things that make our families and communities better places. So let's get to it. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. This is going to be a really interesting episode. We're going to go a little bit deeper than we sometimes do. I have two guests with me. My first guest, his name is Ed Dickerson. He is an author and action author of three books. One of them is Grounds for Belief. The other one is Torn, which is Jacob's story. And the third one is For Such a Time. And I think I'd have to say out of all three of them, one of my ultimate favorites is Grounds for Belief. They're all great books. That happens to be one of my favorite, but any one of those that you pick is going to be a winner. My second guest with me is the pastor of two churches. He's the pastor of the Waterloo Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he's also the pastor of the Hawkeye Seventh-day Adventist Church. So please welcome Ed Dickerson and Josh. Thank you both for
1: being with me. Uh, thank you for having us on. Good to be here.
0: All right. So let's go ahead and start with our first question that we have, and our main topic has to do with who are you, which I think opens up a series of other questions that are extremely important for fathers to understand, and even more importantly to answer. So we're going to go into some of those questions. So let's start with a background into both of you. So you both. Are from different generations. You grew up in, di- in two different places, and so let's talk about that. So, we'll start with Ed, and then we'll go to Josh. Where did you grow up, and how did the way you grow up define who you are now?
1: Well, it's interesting you said I grew up in two different places. I actually grew up in many more different places than that. Um, <laughs>
0: it's true. <laughs>
1: I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, I always say I grew up in transit. Um my mother always thought that things were going to be better somewhere else and so we moved a lot. Uh, I moved I think I lived in 15 houses by the time I was 18 years of age. Uh sometimes it was a short move, sometimes a long one, so it was uh that was a a, a real uh influence on me. Uh I decided uh, I I was a, a teacher in adventist schools for a while, but I discovered they move every few years and so I said, I'm going to move one more time uh, and move to where I am now in Iowa. And I I really thought I just might move from one house to another, but I've lived in the same house for 41 years now. So I needed, I wanted stability. I didn't want to have to move all the time. And I found that it had a negative effect on my uh, wife and son the first time I moved. So uh, I I looked for stability and tried to uh, bloom where I am. Instead of trying to find the perfect place,
0: how did that affect the way you are now?
1: Well, as I say, I wanted stability. I decided that I was going to to pursue my own uh, my own way of doing things rather than uh, try and please other people. So, uh, I, I like stability. I, I'm a, I'm a homebody. I like being in the same place and uh, hasn't changed much. Although I do travel a good deal now, but I've had the same home base for a very long time. And that kind of stability is good. has helped me. Hmm.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. But Josh, what about you?
2: Yeah, um, I grew up uh, in the northwest of the United States, uh, in Oregon. And um, we, <laughs> man, it's hard to even answer the question. We moved a lot. Um, by the time I was, let's say, 13 years old, I had lived in about 15 houses, I think. And, uh, all over Oregon from Salem, Oregon, we went to the coast for a while, a lot of different, um, living situations with different men and, uh, none of them were very stable for very long. I think the longest, um, father figure I had when I was a kid was my, my younger sister's dad, who I called dad for three or four years. Um, and then he, he left the picture too, for a number of circumstances, And uh, we moved to Eastern Oregon, very rural area. Uh, I always tell people the nearest Walmart was 90 miles away. Gives you a good picture. The nearest gas station was 40 miles away or 35 miles away. And uh, so, yeah, that's where I grew up. And, man, how did it affect me? Uh, Well, I know I I always it's funny because I'm a pastor. So, you know, pastors do move quite often. But I always I always wanted to kind of do what Ed ended up doing, uh, staying in a place for a long time. Uh, because I didn't have that as a kid, and uh, in fact, I think the longest I've ever lived somewhere was uh, three years to live somewhere consistently for three years, and so I'm hoping to do longer than that here in Waterloo, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, that's a that that is a lot of moving around, and and it's interesting that that you both have the same the same desires to settle down in one place for for a long period of time after that that history of moving. So let's get into a little bit deeper and let's get into some of what we call the existential questions of who we are and why we're here and where we are going. I've always thought it was so important for fathers to ask those kind of questions of themselves. But, I mean, why is that so important? Why is it so critical for that fathers
1: should seek answers to those questions?
0: And, Ed, we'll start with you.
1: Basically, because if we don't know who we are, we don't know what our purpose is. Uh, mm-hmm. Rick Warren made a lot of money and sold a lot of books about the purpose-driven church, but one of the problems is we have a lot of purposeless fathers. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. And uh, all that kind of comes together uh, and, and makes for... An unstable family. You know, it's possible to be stable and move, but it uh, but it's it's more difficult. But but if but if you're unstable, and there are a lot of people who are saying this, they stay in the same place, but they're unstable. They're always casting about trying to find out what they should be doing or how they're going to do it. And so, a sense of purpose is really important. Uh, you know, why are we here? I call that history where we're going is destiny. And that, that matters, you know, what is the, what is your purpose? Now I'm at, uh, you talked about different, uh, generations. And Josh said that he lived 90 miles from the nearest Walmart. Well, I think where I lived most of my life, I was like 50 years from the nearest Walmart. Uh, <laughs> Walmart didn't come along until I was, uh, was already older. Uh, that, that makes a difference. But, you know, especially in this particular time in history, when culture is changing so rapidly around us, uh, you know, our, our language changes rapidly. Uh, what we're doing today was not possible 15 years ago.
2: Mm, that's not, true.
1: It was extremely expensive to try and do that. And people are on YouTube and they're on Facebook. And those things, neither one are 20 years old yet. So we, we have this rapid change, and children need stability. If you're going to be a father, you need to be, if possible, the rock. You need to be stable. They need to feel like they can come to you for uh, safety and for counsel. And if you're blowing around uh, like everybody else, then uh, they don't feel like they have any, any source of stability themselves and any sense of counsel. Well, Josh, what do you think
0: about it? Why is it so important for fathers to ask those same questions?
2: Yeah, uh, while while Ed was sharing, I, I w- it reminded me of a picture, a drawing I once saw, a cartoon, where there was a lineup of these different creatures. There was a, a monkey and a cat and a, a turtle and a rabbit. And then the teacher was holding a clipboard and she said, now we're going to test you. And across from them was a tree. She said, we're going to test you on your ability to climb this tree. And um, obviously, the monkey was very excited, but the other animals were very disappointed in this test. And uh, it was kind of the point of the cartoon was making fun of the educational system. not And the point was that we don't notice the different gifts that different people have. But I think with a lot of fathers, it's like they don't even realize that they are they were already created to be the monkey for the perfect test, but they're off doing other tests. They're spending all their time um, in other, other things, in other ways of spending their energy. And I feel like they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot because they never ask, um, what is really valuable in life. And so if you don't ask that question, then you're kind of just going by with the wind, whatever pushes you, whatever attractive, shiny thing, or whatever insecurity you got from your own childhood as a, as a person, then you're going to try to fill that need. But that need, um, might not even be the thing that you're that will really fulfill you. Um, you know, you might you might have missed affection from your parents as a kid, so you go out looking for affection from as many women as you possibly can, not realizing that the true affection from your family, from your children, from the people that are, you know, God given gifts. Um, those are the things that are actually going to give you that meaning. Um, so I think asking those questions, it's kind of like if I'm lost in the Amazon jungle and I don't even know where I am, it wouldn't even matter if I had a map because you have to know where you are so that you can figure out where you're trying to get to. Um, but they don't ask the question of where they are. They never try to find out who they are, their their brokenness and they really the true gifts of life. And so then when they try to find meaning, they just aimlessly choose a direction. And oftentimes the direction they go is actually more damaging than the situation they're already in. Um, so, um, it's really, it's hard to answer the question cause it's really one of, it's like the biggest question in life, right?
0: <laughs> Absolutely so, right. That is very true. And did you ever feel like that you found all of the answers to those questions, to all those questions?
2: Uh, well, I'll jump in here. I think you have moments where you feel like it, right? Like when things are going right or when, when things are going wrong. Right in the way that you think they should be going in that moment, right? So you'll have moments where, you're like, man, I'm on top of the world. Uh, you know, we we call those mountain experiences. Um, but it's it's kind of like as soon as you get to the top of the mountain, then the next step is to go down into the valley, right? That's kind of the only option. And it's when then then you realize, like, man, I don't. When you're in that valley, you don't. You realize I don't really know half of what I thought I knew. Um, and I think whether or not you feel like you've reached that you know epic knowledge of all that is life it's never going to be the case that you actually have um and that is in the sense of like completed like the journey is never complete and and, and that's the, the the confusing part is that there are parts of life that are central like there are things that are way more important than other things and those things that are very central and very important you can know those things but then you're still going to be on this journey where you're now applying those things to life right so for example like i think the most important virtue um, that a person can hold on to is love right mm-hmm. um, that's easy to say and that so that's central i know that but then now as i'm going through life like first i went i was in school and i had to learn to love my other classmates or the other students that i that made me insecure because maybe they were more talented than me and so then i go through that journey and i start kind of feeling like okay I'm learning how to love people in this context, but then I get a girlfriend, and then I have to start learn how to love somebody and respect her, and then we get married, and now she's my wife, and I have to learn how to love her as my wife, and then I go to a as a pastor, I went to a church, and there are church members of all shapes and stripes and colors, and and I have to learn to love those people, and so the the central thing that I know about life is that love is, is important. And so that gives me like a stability, but then there's like, okay, now in the day to day, I have to learn how to apply those truths to real life. And I think that that's the continuous growing, extending part of, of who I am.
0: So you're saying that there's a, there's the root existential questions, and then there's the answers to those questions and they become principles to apply to all kinds of other different situations and stages of our lives. Does that sound like what you're saying?
2: Exactly. And I think, I think the word wisdom is usually used to describe like how we apply those principles, like our, our ability to apply those principles in daily life. What about
0: you, Ed? Did you ever feel like you had this completeness, like you knew the answers or found the answers to all of those existential questions, or do you feel like it's just been a journey and a process that still goes on to find those answers?
1: Well, I think it's both. I think, I think it's a product and a process. And there are moments when you, when you realize that you are who you, wh- where you are and what you need to be. But from my perspective, because I'm uh, easily old enough to be Josh's father and yours, <laughs> um, it's also a, a journey that takes place over time, that sometimes at one stage of your life, and Josh mentioned stages, at one stage of your life, you have one purpose, and that may be, there's a central purpose for which you were created, but that may be uh, applied or experienced differently at different times of life. Uh, and, you know, you talked about being single and being uh, a par- being married. Well, there's being a parent, and there's being a grandparent, and there's being um, an in-law, a parent-in-law. All of those are Parts of the journey, and there you're so you're continually discovering who you are, you're redefining that, uh, probably refining the definition is a better way of putting it because you learn more about yourself if you're paying attention, um, uh, and and uh, as what, what role you need to play in all of those different situations. And it can be quite challenging the older you get because uh, I am still a parent. But my children are all now adults and therefore they're my peers sometimes. Uh, And sometimes they need me to be a father and sometimes uh, I just need to be a friend. And those are all uh, different roles and I need it. And when you when you act and one of the problems that, that parents have, especially with their adult children, is they they don't know to quit being a parent all the time. Now I don't know to quit telling you uh, what you need to do or advising you. That's a nice way of putting it. Uh we we think we're giving advice, but in fact we're we're kind of uh, uh nagging and 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 holding you up to things that we shouldn't be. So there's it's it's a delicate balance and it's a continuing, uh, continuing changing. And as I say, it's it's a continual journey of discovery. It doesn't change who I am but it may change how I apply my purpose in a given set of circumstances.
0: I think that clarifies the question that I did have in my mind to ask, which was when, when did you first realize the answers to these questions? And this is not really a very set answer because it's a very circumstantial answer to all of those existential questions. And it sounds like that's really where where this goes. It depends on the stage of life that you're at, and that defines so many of the applications to those answers.
1: Yeah, I, I think of it as, as like sculpture. You know, uh, uh, Michelangelo said that when he did his famous uh, sculpture, David, that mm-hmm. he cut mm-hmm. away everything that wasn't David. Yeah. But that that isn't something that he did with one blow of the hammer and chisel. That was a process he had to block it out and then he began refining this part and then refining that part and so the the purpose remains central and remains the same because god made us with a unique set of talents and abilities and perceptions uh, that uh, will actually uh, enrich the universe each one of us is unique and he, he made us to enrich the universe but we have to then discover those and then apply those in the very service. So there's a continual refining. Uh, there's mm. a continual. Uh, you end up with uh, you know the uh, they start with the big blows on the marble and then they get the, the smaller and smaller chisels and eventually they actually polish it. So <laughs> there's a lot of uh, a lot of things happening all at once there.
0: Josh, how did understanding the weakest part of who you are how did that mm. change you as a person?
2: Wow. <laughs> really jumping in there. Um well, I think man, it helped me see, well like for I'll give you an example of uh, one of the weakest things. When I was a that is no longer as true as it used to be, so I feel comfortable sharing it. <laughs> but uh uh I when I was a kid, probably 13 or 14, I was first uh dealing with some of my baggage from when I was even younger. Um I was realizing the bitterness and the hurt that I had felt and because of the lack of having a father and the neglect and issues I went through, um, I had this just underlying sense of anger. Just, I mean, I was a short fuse. It was kind of just right under the surface. So like I, I loved basketball. And if I made a mistake in basketball, I would just, I mean, get red in the face and throw the ball. I mean, across the entire gym, you know, and it helped me. It's like, I realized that there was more to me that Like who I am is not just the frontal lobe part of me that's making decisions. There's a lot of me that is my history, that is my genetics, that is my insecurities, and that there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of talent and there's a lot of potential there, but there's also damage and there's also um, history that we will sometimes invent a 1000 different ways to avoid dealing with the hurt parts. And like, we don't realize or, or, for example, the anger was not actually because I was angry, it's because I was hurt as a kid. And so now it's like, a, like, if you have a rash on your arm, you know, you're if someone touches, it, it hurts. And so if anybody in any way made me feel insecure, made me feel lesser than I was so sensitive to that, because I, in my inmost self didn't feel valued or good. And so like seeing that helped me realize like there is something about who I am that isn't just the second by second like part of me that's making choices, the frontal lobe. There's like a a part of me that I almost experience as a result of my past. So like those that anger, I couldn't even control it. It it controlled me. Right. And um man there there's a lot that goes with that right like now i have to deal with this and i have to process this and i i needed to go to counseling and i needed prayer and i needed a support system and i needed father figures in my life that would help rewrite some of that um some of that imagery some of those patterns in my in my in the basal part of my brain that i needed th- that to be dealt with because who i am is not just the things I want to be right now. It's also the history and the talents and the genetics. So
0: the person in your life that you call dad now, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine he played a very significant role in changing that weak that week as part of you. I mean, did you ever see him as, as a new example of what it looked mm-hmm. like to have self-control?
2: Oh, I mean, I'll give you a good example. I'll give you a good example. I, um, the answer is yes. But so and in a thousand ways, but a good image of it is one time I came into the house from the backyard and there was dog poop on my shoes. Uh, one of my shoes, I not a lot, but just on the side. And I was like, oh, there's dog poop. So I left the shoes kind of by the sliding glass door on the floor. And I was sitting on the couch and my dad said, hey, could you, um, could you clean the dog poop off your shoes? And I was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And then he waited a few minutes. and He's like, son, could you could you clean the dog poop off the shoe off your shoes? And now when he now I can sincerely say this, it sounds like I'm lying, but I can tell you, I really thought that what he was doing was trying to help. Like he was concerned that my shoes were going to like, it was going to dry and that it was going to hurt the shoes. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking like, no, I'll do that later. I'm not worried about it. But he's saying, I want you to do it because I want it to not be in my house. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's this misunderstanding happened. So he would say, Josh, can you clean the shoes? And I would say, oh no, it's fine. That happened like four times. And finally, I mean, over like twenty minutes. And finally, the the fourth. I mean, you can imagine from his perspective, I'm being super rude and disrespectful and just totally blowing him off. Like, um, and then I was like, and then finally the fourth time, I was totally confused. And I said, "Well, Dad, if you want the poop off, you can clean the poop off." Oh my! <laughs> wow. You can imagine, yeah, you can imagine that did not go well. But he just looked at me like, and I could tell, like, part of him just wanted to throw me out the window. You know, <laughs> and he said, "Son." clean the poop, clean the poop <laughs> off your shoes now. And I just went, oh, and it was in that, like when I saw his look at me, I immediately realized what had happened. And I was like, oh, I have been so rude. I better do this. right. And I grabbed the shoes and I went outside, you know. Um, and then I I cleaned, the, I cleaned the shoes. And then when I came in, um, I, I apologized. And he said, you know, he said, I understand the miscommunication. Um, and I'm sorry if I was rude to you as well, you know, but I would, and that doesn't really explain very well, but it's like, I compare that to how that would have gone if I had been him. Right. And it's like, I would have been angry after the first, you know, disrespectful thing. And then let alone saying, well, if you want to clean the shoes, why don't you do it yourself? It's like, what a little jerk, man. I would have just punted me, you know? Um, but he was super patient. He didn't even get up from the couch. He just looked at me. He, he was firm. He was direct. He was honest. And, um, it helped me see like, man, I, and and I could tell he was angry, like emotionally super hurt that I would be so disrespectful and super frustrated that I was being such a little brat, but very good self-control. And, um, you know, by, you know, an hour later we were totally back to normal. There was no, no reserved issues cause he dealt with it. He communicated, um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in a thousand ways, he's helped me. And that was a very practical experience where I saw it.
1: I'd like to go back just briefly, if I could. to something that Josh has mentioned twice now. Absolutely. And that is anger. Mm. The reason I do this is because uh, in the workshops and things that I give, there, there are three basic negative emotions. Now, there are a lot of nuances and there are variations on the theme. But basically, there's grief, which is... Uh, a negative emotion about the past, something that we, we're missing that we used to have. There's fear, which is a negative emotion about the uh, future. And then there's anger, which is the negative emotion about the present. Hmm. And because, <clears throat> pardon me, because men are, we want, we have a lot of testosterone and it makes us want to act. You know, you've, you've heard the, the, the typical thing where the wife says, Trop trying to, stop trying to fix me. Well, that's what we're made for. We're, we're made to fix things. We want to act on it. And what happens is we don't like to admit that we're afraid, and we don't like to admit that we're grieving. And so, and, and hurt, you mentioned hurt, that's a, a form of grief. Um, so what we do is we then tra- turn it into anger, because anger is energizing. The other two make you feel weak and men don't want to feel weak so we tend to convert all of our negative emotions into anger so we can act on them and uh, i mean you mentioned about you know throwing throwing you out the door and so forth um, i'm not saying i don't have those impulses i'm saying i try to recognize them now for what they are which is i'm really hurt or i'm really f- afraid or something and uh, I'm, I'm trying to turn it into something i can do about it but of course i can't and in fact acting in anger when you're really afraid or hurt, it's just going to make things worse.
2: Mm. You know, that's
0: interesting. I don't think I've really heard very many people, if anyone really explain it that way as an energy shift, it's, it's this grief or just transformed into anger. It hasn't gone away. It's just changed form.
1: Well, we have changed it. We, We, because we don't want to feel weak. We want to feel strong. And yeah, there's a whole thing about this. It's why, it's why boys need fathers because, um, and I don't want to get into too much of this, but when you talk about brain chemistry, <clears throat> excuse me, they've discovered that, that being a woman and being a mother is largely a matter of hormones. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that a woman sees a, a child and there are certain hormones that are triggered and she feels motherly. Uh, but men are this, they have this very strong right brain left brain uh, dichotomy, much more so than, than women do. And so what we have is we have this aggression, which comes from the testosterone. And aggression is not a bad thing, it's only bad when it's misapplied. Aggressive means we want to do something. Uh, but we have to learn then that the left brain, which is supposed to be logical and rational, is supposed to calculate the risks. We want to take the risk, we want to take the action, but the other part is that we're very left-brained and we need to calculate those risks. And how a young man learns to deal with his anger is largely a factor of of modeling his father or being instructed by his father. You you can't find this out from a woman because she doesn't have the same uh, impulses.
0: I hope you've been enjoying part one of this great conversation I've been having with Joshua Hester and Ed Dickerson. You can catch part two in the next episode.